Hi, I'm Kevin, pretending to be Alex, but I'm still super. <laughs> and I'm Dennis, and I am natural. <laughs> he is natural. And They're that making leaves... me the junkie. What? Rude. Yes, well, that means you get to interrupt more. Oh, good. Okay. And dominate conversations. Okay, and who are we? We are the Supernatural Junkies. Hey, folks, this is Dr. Kevin Cruz giving you another pump because guess what? The Supernatural Junkies are on Rumble. All you have to do is go to Rumble, go to search, and when you search for channels, you look for Supernatural Junkies, and all of our stuff is going to start popping up. It's great because you're going to be able to see the links. You'll get to see exactly why we are saying what we're saying, but most importantly, this is a great way to share with your family and your friends exactly what why we are living in prophetic times and why we cannot give up access to our bodies. Welcome to Supernatural Junkies. This is Alex. I'm Super, and we're here with Dr. Kevin, who's a junkie. Wait a minute. When we started before, you said something about super nasally today. I am super nasally today. That's right. I'm supernaturally nasal today. From? I've had a cold. She feels especially Michiganish. Today. Right? I do. I'm all nasally. I'm going to talk about milk. Milk. Yeah. And <laughs> anyway, moving on. We also have a very special guest today. Wait, yeah. what about me? I was allowed to come back today. No. No, okay. After my poor performance on other episodes. That's right. I told him he was on probation. We'll see if he gets to continue on, folks. Let me know. Vote on whether or not Kevin should get to continue on as the host or not. Also, we have a special... Go, Kevin. I mean... <laughs> what, this is what he does every time. We have a very special guest, Gail McRae. I've tried to say it three times now. She is a nurse. Can we call you a whistleblower? Yeah. She is a... She, she she's does, a rebel. She doesn't have a whistle around her neck, but I'm telling you, you're going to hear something. Yeah, you're, you're going to hear lots of uh, whistle blowing today, and we're so grateful you're here with us today. She is a nurse, and I'm going to let her give us the highlights of that because she has had a lot of experience in this field. So please tell us a little bit about yourself. All right. Well, um, I graduated from nursing school in 2011. Um, I started in ICU. I went ahead with uh, also telemetry, med surge, and then found that my love of nursing actually was with the babies and the mamas. Yes. And I went back to grad school to become a nurse practitioner. And uh, I wasn't able to finish that degree because I refused to get the uh, gene therapy injection. So I'm done with the degree. I could not wow. get uh, my 700 hours to get my license. Oh my but goodness! Shame. I was fired in the midst of that as well from wow. from my job. So wow! And she was working. You were working in California. Is that right? Yeah, so I um, had worked in California my whole career in the Bay Area, as a matter of fact, very close to Silicon Valley. Wow. Uh, we were in a community north of there in Sonoma County. And oh, Sonoma County. Wow. Yeah, the very wine nice. country. Yeah. Lots of good wine there. Yeah. <laughs> yes, lots of good everything. It's beautiful. And yeah. lots of good food. Mm. Yeah. But um, I... Um, 
So what was the issue that, you know, you ended up, um, you know, getting fired over or did you just have to leave? What happened? So I noticed right from the get-go that we never had increased admissions in the hospital. Um, in 2020, uh, the uh, media came out and said, oh, yeah, COVID's coming from China and we should all be careful and, you know, isolate and stay at home. And then... Um, and then we never saw increased emissions in the hospital. Wow, that's the opposite of what we were all told. Yeah. Well, what about all the stuff on television where you saw the lines around the hospital? Yeah, I'm not really sure about that because I know practitioners all over the state of California and none of them had uh, floods of patients into their hospitals. As a matter of fact, um, most of us were getting canceled during uh, the year of 2020 and the, through the winter of 2021, uh, I would say, so before myself, my mom was a nurse for 40 years. And so we have been working hospital medicine cumulatively as a family for uh, about 50 years. And uh, we had never seen uh, increased admissions um, out of the ordinary in the winters, mm -hmm. um, regardless of COVID. Mm -hmm. It was a standard wow. flu season. Well, and that's totally opposite what were we being shown so um they were obviously maybe staging these or had what do they call trauma actors perhaps something weird. that's all that i can really come to i mean i can speculate i suspect that that you know i so i know that in new york they had all of that stuff going on with increased admissions and i would speculate with that as well that you know there were laws passed um so that the governor was allowing people who had been um, tested COVID positive to return to nursing facilities. Mm. And I know that that caused a massive increase in hospitalizations in New York. Right. But as far as California goes, I, you know, oh. we had standard hospital hospitalizations for the winter. But California also had some of the strictest lockdown policies ever. I And it went on for so long. Yeah. That it, it bankrupted a lot of people. Did it sure. not in that community? Did you not see that happening? Absolutely. Uh, I read a newspaper article in uh, at the end of 2021 saying that 40% of California's small businesses have gone out of business permanently. Yes. Wow. That's shocking. And you can you got to figure that this is part of the overall plan. And then the mask came along and how did you how did you do with that? Well, unfortunately for me, uh, I developed a severe mask reaction. I would have to show you pictures to really get you to see the extent of the damage uh they ended up i i went and saw six dermatologists they tried me on all kinds of treatments uh nothing helped so i started seeking alternative care i ended up finding actually a chiropractic doctor doctor who specialized in genetics and wow. uh, nutritional management wow and he did an in-depth scan of my genome and found out that i had uh gut dysbiosis that led to low production of serotonin hmm. that caused um, me to have an immune uh, reaction because when you have, uh, I, I apparently there's a negative feedback loop between serotonin and histamine. Hmm. And so when you have low serotonin levels, your histamine can't Goes be over checked. The, over the top. 
So, yep. So he put me on a supplement. It's been the only thing that has taken me out of this um, autoimmune reaction. What was it like when all of a sudden the nurse can't wear the mask? It was torture because I became ostracized by my community and I was in so much pain. You've seen those photos. It was extremely painful. I was disfigured. Um, I couldn't go out into my community because being in California where people were, you know, so extremely compliant. Put that mask on or or we'll just shoot you, right? (laughs) Yeah. So that was tough. It's sad when, you know, people can't have the human decency to, you know, accept variation and to understand that not everyone fits into the cookie cutter mold of, you know, yes, we can all wear this mask and be fine. We can't. Well, you know, the nurses union in Canada, by the way, and you you all stall the stuff that happened in Canada just a few years previously, they actually won a suit. Again, we didn't want to take the flu vaccine, so then they made us wear masks, and they actually were able to show that there's no possibility that these could actually filter something this small. And so the Canadian Nurses Union run that, but again, this is why we couldn't figure out why nurses in America weren't trying to make the same argument. But we're also, we were anticipating, or we were expecting, and, and most people complying with, things that were for... Like you said, one size does not fit all. You know, there was at a PTA meeting, a young girl got up and she was devastated by the effects of the masks, um, of everyone having to wear a mask because she was deaf. And she's like, I rely on seeing people's faces to understand them, to read their lips, to understand what people are saying. And taking that away from her was absolutely devastating. And it's not just... considered that. Yeah, it's not just the, the people who are deaf and mute that have that problem is the elderly and so i saw a ton of that in the hospital where gosh i would say probably 70 percent of my patient population was hard of hearing at least and so it was devastating to my ability so not only could they then not connect with me as their nurse but they were also not allowed to have visitors come into the hospital so we were isolating them from their families we were isolating them from the staff i mean how can anyone survive in that kind of oppression when they're being told that they're going to die because they have covid right it was atrocious it is atrocious it was human rights violations to something i've never seen like before it was sick and, the and way we were treating our patients. But the fact that, you know, we all just had to sit there and go along with this this narrative. That so, And I had also heard that the nurses in Los Angeles, when they started the uh, vaccine mandates, they were like, look, um, because you guys were on the front lines and you saw the effects this, the vaccine was having way before anyone else, that um, they were saying like 30 to 40% of the frontline workers, because of the effects they saw from the vaccine, did not want it. Did you, is that in fact true? Because those are all just stories we read. We don't, you know, we in don't California, I don't know if it was quite that high because there were so many people that were compliant with it. I couldn't even believe it just in the first, you know, before the vaccine was released when I would go to work and I'd say, hey, don't you guys think it's interesting that, you know, we haven't had any more patients than we normally do and yet the media is saying all this stuff about how the hospitals are full the other thing that that happened multiple times in the hospital i would walk into work and i'd say hey you know we're administering this medication called remdesivir it's an antiviral 
why are we giving an antiviral, you know, more than four days past symptom onset, first of all? Second of all, we can all see that it's not actually helping our patients. And in fact, I would I would say that the nursing staff in that case, they recognized that, hey, you know, this medication is, is not helping and it looks like it's actually causing harm. And, you know, we knew the nurses we knew that it was causing harm. We knew we knew that at the very least it was not helping our patients and we would bring it up to the doctors and it was just silence. Yeah. Wow. That's interesting because that was one of the questions I asked you. You start to look at so many things. So for you, you could see there's some intellectual problems. You know, what they're seeing on television isn't really showing up in reality for you and you're you're supposed to be right on the front lines. And then, of course, you have this, you know, massive reaction that takes over your life from wearing masks. And then you realize how ostracized you can really become. So you can see how, you know, this narrative started to fall apart for you. And you start to think, but I still, I ask my question, you know, this is the question, you know, why do you think all the nurses and doctors have went along with this? What do you, what do you think? How do they pull this off? Yeah, so that's a great question. And I the reason that I think I feel qualified to answer that is because of my uh, participation in my community. Um, as a result of feeling ostracized, um, I got together with a few colleagues and we started a local community group for practitioners who were being um, attacked for uh, for noticing and speaking out about things that we were seeing in the hospital that were going wrong. And I got to really sit down and talk with my community members who were aware of it. In that group, there was about 120 people. And we started a telegram group and we met in person. And they were all very aware of what was going on. And not one of them would stand up and speak out about it for fear of losing their jobs. And that's the saddest thing here is that we have people that are willing to compromise their integrity because they're afraid of losing their paychecks. Well, this ultimately changed your whole life. It did. Right? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so after I recognized, you know, how disempowered people were by um, making that choice uh, to, you know, take their paycheck over, over the truth mm-hmm. and over standing up to do what was right, um, I realized that something needed to be done. And I was in a financial position because my husband and I, he was a, he's a civil engineer and we had diversified into real estate. So I was in a financial position where I wasn't necessarily relying on my paychecks to make ends meet. And so I said, you know what, I'm, I'm going to stand up for this one because I can and so um, when my hospital came down with the vaccine mandate, it was uh, they sent out the first email at the end of July of 2021. And they said, you know, if you so at that time, I'll have, you know, I had um, COVID in November of 2020 and I'd had my blood drawn in January of 2021, proving that I had antibodies. Mm. So I handed that to my employer and I said, you know, I have natural immunity which history dictates is more efficacious. What is that? (laughs) They just didn't even answer to the question. That's what they always do. They're just like... It's like the slate, you know. You mean you're trying to explain that there has to be... You could buy them with the studies and they'd be like, "Hmm, so what? Yeah, so I did. So then with that natural immunity, with the Nuremberg Code, with California Codes and Regulations, and with the... um, 
and with constitutional um, amendments and um, United States codes and regulations, I submitted about six um, affidavits to my employer wow. uh, when they when they told me I needed to get the jab. And I said, you know, I have a contract with you. You know, you're violating all of my rights if you're going to try to fire me. And um, here's here's my here's my proof that I don't have to actually comply. And if you can prove me wrong, then you know we can we can go into a legal discussion about this. But they just ignored those documents. So I had them process served on September 21st. They put me on leave on September 22nd, <laughs> and then they fired me on what? October 1st. Oh wow! So it was very it was a very quick process. It was. Definitely uh, retaliation. So yeah, for sure. Oh, you were. Made <laughs> yeah, they don't care about yeah, legal. For sure. Yeah, you know those laws we have. There's no judge that's going to hear you. Everybody's going to throw out the law. That's really what's happened. All these laws have really been broken, but we they they really have something going on where they won't hear these laws. There's been very few judges that will do that. I'm curious. How did your other your peers react um, to this? Like the majority of them went along with it out of fear. Did they have any reservations about getting the vaccine themselves or did they um, ostracize you and vilify you because of that or did they have sympathy? I'm just curious. You know, um, most of what I experienced was either silence or sympathy. Uh, I think that that's one of the nice things about the, you know, my coworkers. I had had, I'd been at that hospital for six years and I had, um, you know, worked in a friendly manner with everyone in that hospital on all units and so you know at the it, it was nice that at least they weren't outwardly hostile hostile yeah. towards me but um you know they did they they did you know ruin the lives of myself there's another coworker i had who was um she was forced to retire early that was a big hit for her uh and you know we've talked since then about it it's you know they even even if they're not outwardly hostile, they're still breaking laws and trampling yeah. on our rights. So it was still pretty disconcerting. And it's it, and it's it's disconcerting for sure that they're still getting away with it. This is you know we're making like this happened, but it still happens. This is not a past tense event. This is something that is still ongoing. This is all over the world now. You know that this is happening, and yet. Does it shock you because you can so clearly see the trail of evidence, right? What it, what this is really pointing to, and that this is still being allowed to happen, that this is still being enforced. I, I find that really shocking. Do you? Absolutely, it's unbelievable. Uh, and that was one of the. Uh, so I'll take you back a little bit. Um, in my graduate studies, uh, I. Was that one of my assignments was to do a 15-minute PowerPoint presentation on uh, something that was confrontational in medicine, and I chose out of hospital births. And so this was in 2019, I believe, uh, or right at the beginning of the pandemic, maybe. But I ended up uh, going into the ACOG, which is American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, to research I chose our out-of-hospital births safe. And there's a Cochrane review on that, which Cochrane, that's a database where they give, um, they, they 
and now analyze all of the data in the world to come forward with what the data shows. So the Cochrane review showed that out-of-hospital births were safe, and ACOG, which is the main uh, website in the United States that gives medical recommendations to um, OBGYNs and midwives, uh, they said in their statement that we don't recommend out-of-hospital hosp births because they're unsafe and you can have an increased rate of seizures. And I was so perplexed by that because I was like, well, why is it that we have some organizations saying that it's safer to be out of hospital and others saying that it's not? So I scrolled down to the bottom of that article. There were 46 peer-reviewed studies linked to that statement. 44 of them showed better outcomes with out-of-hospital births. And I'm talking everything from like NICU admissions to sepsis to um, postpartum hemorrhaging all across the board, better outcomes without a hospital birth. Oh my wow. goodness. And the two studies that that contradicted that opinion, one of them was on, uh, it, first of all, it was written in 1995, and it was done on women who had unplanned out-of-hospital births, mm. so it was not a related patient population. The second study had a letter to the editor with stating that their evidence was not correct. And that was the paper that showed the the link to um, post-birth um, post seizures. So at that point, I discovered, okay, so our government organizations are not actually following the science. No. So what are they actually doing? So then when COVID started, I think that was really... That was a pivotal moment for me in my nursing career when I realized that I couldn't rely on the organizations uh, to give us accurate information about... In fact, about... we got 20, 24 to 2, and yep. even the two were tainted, but we're going to list those two, right? Right. Wow. And that's what we're seeing. We're seeing a complete propaganda, even though the studies are out there. Right. But then we had to hear from Mr. Science himself how dare you argue with us and this is the attitude really that you bumped into yeah so yeah. you know we know you got into nursing to help people but it was interesting then you decided to really become you know nurse practitioner but mainly because of the kids and i noticed that you you went to africa was it and where else did you go so before my husband and I got married, we moved to Alaska and spent a winter up there. That was more for funsies and for us to get our yayas out before starting Wait, that was college. For fun, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was actually incredible. We took a car and drove up. We took the ferry from Washington up to Alaska through the Aleutian uh, chain down the down the side of Canada, and it was absolutely spectacular. But that experience in Africa definitely changed my life. Yeah. Uh, we did a lot of, we went independently, so I uh, didn't sign up with any group. We, you know, we showed up, we had some connections, and we kind of figured our way through. We were supposed to actually end up in Liberia. Uh, my husband's a water engineer, so he was going to do restoration oh, wow. of wells and water systems and build water systems, cool. and I was going to work in the medical care system. But uh, when we first showed up there, actually, uh, our flight was scheduled to leave from Zambia to Liberia mm. on July 12th, which was two days after the first case of Ebola hit wow. Liberia. Oh, so we were like, oh my goodness, what are we going to do? So we ended up getting connected with a team in uh, 
in Tanzania, um, AMREF is the name of the organization, and they got us uh, licenses and um, residency permits to practice and work in Tanzania. And uh, we found a hospital out in the middle of the Serengeti, which was absolutely incredible. But I learned a lot about the mentality of those people there and what distinguishes um, myself from, um, you know, I... I realized how privileged I was to have parents who empowered me. Right. That's really something that I was so sad to see lacking in 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 that part of Tanzania at the very least. I I suspect it's throughout the continent. Mm. But you know, I guess when you grow up watching your, you know, the women in your life being sold for four cows and, you know, raped and beaten on a regular basis, um, the 100% of the population that I cared for, the women were um, having their genitals mutilated at 13 years old. So I got a very clear understanding of how you know, discrimination against that gender Mm. just played such a heavy role in, in my opinion, you know, the children's capacity to believe in themselves and to, you know, really find a way to be successful in life. Right. Wow. Wow. So then you come back here, you know, back to reality and you see this kind of come down. Well, talk about privilege. You realize like how privileged being from America, being born in America or even Canada, how Privilege. You, Wait, we, even yeah. Canada. Even Canada. Yeah. I know, hard to well, believe. that's right. We, yeah. Those Canadian truckers. They're yeah. awesome. Yeah. Eh? We have access. <laughs> You're like, right. You know, we, we do. Awesome. We have so much, and that that's really what privilege is right. about. When and uh, you know to hear someone that lives in America cry about how they don't have privilege or how there's some other something here in America along with them that has more privilege. You're like, you have no idea. It's all in our minds. Open and it. really that's Open what Africa, eyes. that's what Africa taught me mm-hmm. is that privilege is in your mind. And when you're taught that you're capable of anything, it's like that God inside of us. That's mm. what I, how I see seed, it. Right? Is mm-hmm. my mom and dad told me as a child that I could do anything I put my mind to doing. And I grew up believing that about myself. And, you know, I think a lot of people just don't have that gift. But, and, and, and ultimately, that's what empowered me to stand up to my employer mm-hmm. was bl- knowing amazing. in my heart. Did, did you that, say that you were also homeschooled and that was... I was, oh, wow, yeah. Awesome. So she's a, she's been to Alaska, been to Africa. She's like, <laughs> I, I'm in awe right now because that's uh, Alaska's pretty tough. You have to be pretty hardcore. Yeah, because we watch like, Alaskan bush people. That's right. It's amazing. We know. <laughs> yeah, we it it really it, in a sense kind of set the stage for me to challenge the narrative as well. You know, going through all those types of experiences before COVID happened, it really showed me what I was capable of and what, you know, what I could actually do. I think so. And that's what this keeps coming back to. People are like, well, why did you stand up? Absolutely. And it's like, well, you know, when I really reflect on my background, I learned how to exercise courage at a young age. Mm -hmm. It was both through homeschool because being homeschooled, you have to learn how to accept being different. Like as a teenager, especially, I was so self-conscious about being different than all the other kids. Mm. And it was hard, but it taught me that I could be different and that it was okay. 
Mm. Yeah. And so, and that same principle applies to these trips to Alaska and Africa. It's like, you know, I had practiced exercising courage and doing things that were outside of the box. So it gave me the courage to stand up to my employer when they said, you need to alter your your DNA to work for my establishment. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, you currently homeschool, right? Because you're, we were talking about this a little bit earlier. Um, she's a bit of a gypsy now because she's no longer living in California. So she lives in a van down by the river. <laughs> you know, it's Not funny. Quite, but... That is exactly the conversation my husband and I have when we're joking about it. We're like, we get to, we're like, yeah. When, when our kids grow up, we're going to get to tell them that we live by a van down by the river. Oh, <laughs> oh my gosh. Kevin loves that so much right now. You just made his day. Well, I grew up in an Airstream trailer, all six of us, so... <laughs> We've got an Airstream. That's awesome. It's a 30-foot bunk in the back. Well, I remember we oh, got our awesome. first 32-foot Winnebago. Do you have a big silver Airstream? <laughs> yeah. Really? Oh, wow. I love it. Yeah. Love it. So we sold our house in California and bought a truck and a trailer. Wow. You saw that huge beast I'm driving. That's yeah, the only truck we got. <laughs> I, I was, You know, there's a group of women entrepreneurs... Um, that they all have, it's not all Airstreams, but they, they do like these festivals and I think in the summer they travel mostly, but yeah, there's like a group of women that go and they camp and do all that. It's kind of cool. I've yeah. always wanted a little mini one. You're yeah. not coming, Kevin. If I get that little mini one, you're not coming. They're a lot of fun. It's nice to not have to deal with leaking, you know, slide yeah. outs. Wow. <laughs> That's my favorite thing about that. Oh, yeah. oh, with the the, the tip outs. Yeah. yeah, those. It you know we don't deal. We don't have any maintenance. You know nothing major, nice. just mm. minor things. So standing up now. Why are you on <laughs> the like road here? On I mean, you you can see here that you, you know, you you see you don't have the cognitive dissonance that most people have. You're like, wait a minute. The TV says this is explosive. All the hospitals are full, but I work at the hospital. What's going on? You notice that there's this doesn't make any sense, you know, and then you have the reaction to the mask and then you realize, hey, why is there genetic material in this vaccine? I don't want to I'm not going to put my DNA, you know, on the line for you. And you start to see how this all starts to unveil for you. But, you you know, that's my next question is, you know, how are you standing up? But I, I want to know a little bit before that, too, because. You know, California was one of the earliest, hardest hit places or so we were told, right? So I want to know, like, um, how did you see that there was more than what was being said at play? Like, what what was that unraveling for you? How did you get there? Well, it was so, really, it was, it's so interesting. So I've never really been much of a TV watcher. And I really, that's really when it hit home for me, what the difference was between reality and and what people were talking about reality to be is that, you know, I would go to work and I was there and, you know, the hospital wasn't full and people were talking about how the hospital was full. And I was like, but the hospital's not full because I'm getting canceled. <laughs> and um, and then I would walk into my patient's room and I'd see the TV on and I'd see them just like, oh, my gosh, everything is full. You know, everyone, the hospital, you know, we can't get enough staff, this and this and that. And, and, then, and then I realized, like, wow, this is really playing on people's emotions. You know, sitting in front of that TV and seeing that propaganda, yeah. telling them what was going on. Wow. I mean, I think that that was part of why I never really experienced that fear because I just don't watch 
you know, the news. The dichotomy of like yeah. the reality of you living, actually being in it, right? right? And that's why too, because I was like, well, I don't, I don't need to watch the TV because I'm working at the hospital. I already know what's going on. And it really gave me, you know, a little bit, it was really seeing the TV in my patient's rooms that woke me up to how insane it was. But I want to go into what happened a little bit at the hospital before I was fired, because this is extremely important for people to understand. So I was talking a little bit about how um, the hospital wasn't full through the winter of 2020 and 2021. So these injections, call them vaccines, they're gene therapies, they're yeah. therapeutics. They were rolled out uh, to the healthcare providers in you know the end of December, early January 2021, and they got released to the public in my community uh, at the end of February, early March. And coming from the Bay Area in California, these are two things I realized in retrospect. The first thing is we have one of the com- most compliant communities in the country. Over 80% of the people in my community went out and got the jab. Secondly, I discovered this when I was doing my research in grad school, which was that uh, I did a research project on my community, um, um, uh, what do you call them, Uh, statistics. And I found out that my community had one of the highest elderly populations in the country. So we had a very high rate of comorbidities. And so in March... That means underlying conditions then? underlying conditions a high rate of underlying conditions a high elderly population a lot of of you know diabetes obesity um you know cardiac disorders of all sorts yeah and so um in june or sorry in in march the staffing department starts calling me so this is after the first what 13, 14 months of covid with no alterations in hospital admissions all of a sudden in march my staffing department starts calling me every day, three times a day. So it started mid-March and they started getting more and more desperate. By April, they were calling me three times a day, desperate, begging me to come to work. And um, I I didn't mention this, but in graduate school, um, what I would do, I, t- I took a position called a per diem position, which means for Kaiser is that, that I could basically pick my own schedule. So I would- it means per day. Yeah, I could I could sign up for four shifts a month. That was always that was required of me, and then I could cancel myself for them if I decided I didn't want to work them. So what I do is I do my grad school and take my exams for you know ten weeks, and then I go to the hospital and work in between my quarters. So it was a quarter system. I'd go to work for three weeks. So I had a break from school from the end of March until mid April. And I was there at the hospital every day, and I worked several doubles during that time because the hospital was just overwhelmed with patients. And then I went back to school, and the calls didn't stop. They just kept calling and calling three times a day every day. They It was relentless. So after I took my exams on June 17th was my last final, uh, I went back to the hospital, and I literally worked double shifts every single day for that break from June 17th wow. until July 4th. And the hospital was just so overwhelmed with patients. Now, I want to take a second to just think about the um, the profoundness of this. Because now not only is the hospital slammed, but it's now summer. Now, people need yeah. to understand yeah. 
in the 45 years that my family's been in medicine, we have never seen a hospital full during the summer months. So this was extraordinary. So my manager approached me in June and he said to me, the poor guy, he was, you know, he could barely string his sentences together because he was stressed out so badly. He'd probably been working doubles for the last three months while I was, you know, studying. <laughs> and he, he put his hand on the desk next to me at the, station, the nurse's station. He said, Gail, this hospital has had three times higher admissions than they've ever had since the hospital opened their doors. And that was in, um, in 1990. The hospital opened their doors in 1990. So that was over 30 years being open. Wow. So let's, let's put that in perspective. So let's say before, before March of 2021, they'd had 500 hospital admissions per month. Now they've got 1,500 hospital admissions per month. Did, did the hairs on the back of your neck stand up? So I couldn't believe it. I wonder what could be the cause for this sudden huh? increase in people yep. coming in. So I went home from work that day and I just kept going like, wow, oh my goodness, wow. And then it just happened to be on that day that I was um, a patient care coordinator for the unit. So I had gotten report on every patient in that unit and every single patient was there for either clotting disorder. So that would include heart attacks, strokes, pulmonary wow. embolisms. Yeah. Or they were there, oh, this was the first time in my career I had seen, so within that week, I had seen three hospital admissions for Guillain-Barre, which, I mean, over my whole career, I had probably (laughs) seen, I'd probably seen maybe five hospital admissions for Guillain-Barre in my whole career. And all of a sudden, I had three within a week. So... So it was that conversation with my manager and my reflection on the entire patient population of the hospital that day that really made me realize this is being caused. And then I was like, okay, so the conversation with my manager, the patient population, and the fact that my staffing department has been calling me nonstop since March. What happened in March? onset of injections in my community and that's when it really hit me and that's actually what led me to standing up so staunchly and forming that group in my community because I realized that and this is something you know it's easy for a lot of people this needs to be this needs to be stated it is really easy for practitioners around the country to deny what I'm saying and you know what in their communities it's probably true because they didn't have that 80 to 90 percent injection rate And so when you're not seeing it hit you like that all at once, it's a lot easier to remain in that state of cognitive dissonance and not be able to recognize what you're seeing. But, you know, the stories we've heard, just the general population, it really is over 75% of the population in the United States that is adult has received uh, at least two. If they have though, most of them too, it's it's trickle it has come in as more of a trickle rather than all at once. I see. Okay. Because your population, the this it was skewed because of the age difference, yeah, right? And that too. Okay. Hey guys, we are actually going to wrap this interview up and do a part two. So we're going to stop this one here and we're going to continue on with all of our outro and exit music. 
And we will see you next time where we will continue right from where we left off for part two with whistleblower nurse Gail. Thanks so much for listening. Hey folks, just wanted to take a minute and tell you about SoilMinistries.org. It is an outreach of vision and resources to Honduras. And we're trying to help those people. It's probably the second poorest in our hemisphere. It can be the murder capital of the world. And the sex trafficking, one of the sex trafficking capitals of the world as well. Yeah, so we even have a safe home for girls over there that we need funding for. We have a deaf for deaf children's home there. We, of course, feed the homeless. We also have a medical missions fund over there. And that's probably one of our most successful ones with the COVID. It's easier to get the medical professionals in. So please be sure to check it out at soilministries.org. God bless you. Thank you.